0: The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. I invite you now to open the scriptures with me. Uh, If you would like to stretch out your hand for a copy of the scriptures, let's open to Matthew chapter 5. You can find that on your pew Bible on page 810 or whatever Bible that you have. Let's open together to Matthew chapter 5. We have... Been through uh, many weeks now uh, engaging Matthew's gospel in the Lord Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that begins in chapter 5. The Sermon on the Mount runs from chapters 5, 6, and 7, and we've been enjoying some time there now. But especially this morning, we're looking at Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, and you see the heading there, and you also see the sermon title uh, this morning. We, We consider what the Lord Jesus has to say to us about the the matter of anger Um, but this is something that I'm quite certain that the Lord Jesus will speak to all of our hearts so in preparation for that if you have your Bible open let us pray together and we will hear God's word father we thank you for the mercy of your grace we thank you for your word we thank you that you are a God who is not distant from us but near to us reveals yourself in your word that we might know you That we might not only know you but also live before you in obedience and with worship and so we pray now that as we hear the words of your son the lord jesus that our hearts would be places that are ready to hear that our ears would be opened that our minds would be given illumination for understanding and that lord you would look upon every single person here today and speak your word powerfully in the strength of your Holy Spirit. And so come now, Lord, help me as I teach, give understanding to us all, help us to worship you in spirit and truth, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. And now hear the word of God from Matthew in chapter 5, at verse 21 through verse 26. This is the word of God. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. May He writes eternal truth on our hearts and I, I do hope that you'll keep a Bible open with me as we look to this text uh, because I'm quite certain that Jesus speaks to all of our hearts when he speaks to us here. Now, Again, we've been in this section of Matthew's Gospel 5, 6, and 7 called the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus is doing is that he has ascended the mount and he has uh, sat in a, a posture of teaching authority to say to all who would hear that he is the king that he reigns over his kingdom that has broken into the world, and all those who would seek to follow after him and be his disciples must learn what it looks like to live in his kingdom. And these words are his words to the kingdom disciples who long to follow after him and so learn of Jesus and learn what it means to live in his kingdom even while they live here on earth. Because his spiritual kingdom has broken into this earthly realm and there is a reality of life that is a reality for Christian believers that oftentimes the non-Christian doesn't see, doesn't understand, and can't know. Jesus speaks this word that we as Christian people or those curious of Jesus perhaps might see what it means to live and follow Jesus. What he's done is he has spoken in the Beatitudes about what it looks like to live in the Christian kingdom. And now he is speaking about matters of Christian character. And what he is doing for the rest of chapter 5 at least is he is expanding on something he said in chapter 5 and verse 20. Look back in chapter 5 verse 20. In chapter 5 verse 20 Jesus says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is now expanding on what that means and what it looks like to live righteously in the kingdom of God. Not with a righteousness that comes from yourself, but live by faith in a righteousness that comes from Jesus. Or another way of saying it is, what does it mean and what does it look like to live a life that is transformed by the grace of God? What does it look like? Jesus goes on to explain all these different applications. He's come to say that he has not come to overthrow the law of God, but to fulfill it. And in fulfilling the law, he wants to explain to the Christian believer what it looks like to live in obedience to God under the grace of God. So notice just how he frames his words. Uh, You'll see that he gives six examples different examples through the rest of chapter 5, and every example is begun with him saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. If you look at that formula and scan down chapter 5, you'll notice six different occurrences of Jesus saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He does it in our text here this morning in verse 21, but also in chapter 5, verse 27, 31, 33, 38, and 43, Jesus says, I want to tell you more about what it means to live in my kingdom. And I want to expand on what you've heard by now telling you what I have to say to you. And when he does this, he is not denying what they have heard in terms of the Old Testament law. Jesus is coming to contradict the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes, those religious leaders who had so corrupted the faith that they actually took the law of God and made it do something it was never intended to do. And so when Jesus says, you have heard, he's going to cite something from the Old Testament, cite especially in the Ten Commandments, he's going to say, you have heard, and when he does that, he's going to say, you have heard what the scribes and the Pharisees said about the law. You have heard their take on this matter. You have heard their opinion. You have heard it said, but now I say to you, And when he does that, he is setting himself up in contrast to the interpretation of the law that the Pharisees and the scribes did and his true interpretation of the law. So understand very carefully that Jesus is not contradicting the nature of the law itself. He is contradicting the wrong interpretation of the law and instead saying, if you want to know how to live and please God, it looks like this. It looks like this. Not like that, as you have previously heard it, but it truly looks like this. And that's what he does for the rest of this chapter. And this morning, we come to the first of these illustrations, and you'll see that it's all about the subject of anger. So the first example is here in verses 21 through 26. Jesus takes up the issue of the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment of you shall not murder. And as we've already said, he is not contradicting the sixth commandment. He is taking up how people have traditionally heard it and how they had been taught according to the tradition of the day and the religious teaching of the Pharisees. He is going to contradict the way they have taught it because the Pharisees and the scribes were absolutely famous for taking the law of God and then abusing it using it only in the external sense and not really understanding the true spiritual meaning. So, for example, they would take the sixth commandment, which is not to murder, and they would distill it down and say, well, what's murder actually anyway? It's surely not this. It's surely not that. And what they would do is they would pare down the commandment in such a way that they would remove the spiritual intent of the law... And only focus on the external, but even just focusing on the external, they would do damage to the law of God. They would seek to qualify it in such a way that they would say, well, it's not this, it's not that. They would really distill it down and remove its real meaning. And it was that sense of half-hearted law-keeping and really a fake piety before God that undermines the law. And Jesus has come to correct that notion. Which is why he says, but I say to you, I don't want you to listen to what you've heard in the past. I don't want you to listen and have the law of God filtered through these false teachers. I want you to hear my own voice. So Jesus is going to take the sixth commandment, which on the surface, externally speaking, seems very clear. He's going to take that external commandment and drive it to our hearts and therefore apply the law of God the way it was always intended to be applied, which is spiritually, not just physically. Internally, not just externally. He's going to drive us to the level of the heart. So, here again his words in verses 21 and 22. Look at it there. You have heard it said, Those of old you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He is teaching that the Sixth Commandment regarding murder is not only forbidding the outward act of taking a life unjustly, but the Sixth Commandment also applies to the words that we speak and the thoughts that we have and the intentions that reside in our hearts. So do you see, right away, he is amplifying the application of the sixth commandment by saying, it's not just taking a physical life. Murder can happen in your heart. Murder can happen with your tongue, is what he's saying. That's why he gives these two examples right away at the end of verse 22. Look at it there in verse 22. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Both of these examples, right away, Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like to transgress the sixth commandment with your tongue. He speaks of examples of someone speaking a word against someone in anger. And the first example is a little bit veiled in the English text. But if you're looking there in verse 22, you'll notice that there is a footnote by the word insult, whoever insults, or maybe you have a different translation and you'll see the difference. This is a bit veiled in the English translation, which is why the ESV provides a footnote. And if you look down into the textual notes, you'll see that Jesus is actually using an Aramaic term called raka. And if you call someone a raka in Aramaic, you are saying a deeply painful insult against specifically their mind. Jesus is saying you can insult someone's mind. It would be like translating it as calling someone an idiot. And I don't know if anybody uses this terminology anymore. A blockhead, if you like. To insult the mind of a person is what Jesus is speaking about when he speaks of insults or using the Aramaic term raka. It literally means empty-headed so, Jesus says, first of all, it's possible to insult someone's mind, but the second example that he gives is not only to call someone a raka, but also a fool, which is translated from the Greek word moros, which is where you can anticipate we get the word moron. So, Jesus is cumulatively saying it's possible to insult both someone's mind and their character, their intelligence, and their actions. Mind and character is what is kind of bulked together when he uses this terminology of insults and call a fool. So Jesus is making this point that to kill with a knife or to lash out in anger or to belittle another person by insulting their mind or their character, all of that is part of the same spiritual sickness. The physical taking of life and the wounding of life through killing with words or in our hearts. It reveals the sin of our hearts is what he's doing. Now, understand clearly that Jesus does not mean that it makes little difference whether or not we physically kill someone or gossip about them. That matters. There is a distinction that's there. He doesn't mean that, but he does mean that both activities, both actions, both the physical taking of life and The wounding of someone's character with our words reveal the same animosity of our hearts and therefore the evil that lies within them and is expressed in our anger. Jesus is putting, therefore, on the same plane the physical act of murder and the killing with words. So do you see how he is pressing on this internal and spiritual application of the law? He's taking a commandment which people are only used to thinking about externally and he is driving it into a spiritual application and it searches our hearts. Friends, you might not have literal blood on your hands from taking someone's life, but are you guilty of someone's blood with your thoughts, with your words, with the intentions of your hearts? These things come about from our anger, careless words, insults, lashing out in anger, hostility that has perhaps been brewing inside of you for years, that makes you think things, fantasize about things perhaps. We treat the damage that we do with our lips very lightly, not considering that there might be a literal body count that trails behind our tongue. That's what Jesus is saying. The issue is our anger. And when we have anger in our hearts, we tend to deal with it one of two ways. It's somewhat generalized, but one of two ways. We either express our anger by way of ventilation, right? We call it blowing up, or it's internalized. Anger is either explosive or contained by way of internalization. And internalization, to stew over things, it's less obvious than blowing up, but it's equally sinful because it causes us to stew and fester on our anger. We like to justify our actions because we think we just need to let it out, and people just have to deal with it as we let it out. Or the opposite, we hold it in because we don't want to vent, but stewing is no more spiritual than venting, and equally are both disobedient. The issue is not how our anger is handled. The issue is that the anger is in my heart in the first place. So, what do we, what do, we do with that? Well, we're going to see what Jesus says, but first of all, consider the wisdom of Proverbs 16.32, which says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit is better than the one who takes a city. True spirituality and true Christian maturity means getting a handle on these internal applications of the law of God. Are you slow to anger? Do you have control over your emotions? So what we need to do is we need to hear this clearly, that obedience is not optional for the Christian believer. Jesus is showing us that when an activity is forbidden in God's word, when an activity is forbidden, it also means that its counterpart is commanded. Jesus says, don't murder. Great, that's true. But you are also equally responsible for personal reconciliation, handling your anger. Since we are not to engage in physical or verbal murder, we are to engage in personal reconciliation. And Jesus wants to help us to do that because now he's going to give two pictures of what this looks like, two pictures of removing hostility that exists between parties of people between other people and ourselves. You see them there in the text. The first one is in verse 23. Look at it again, verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So you picture somebody in church. They are expressing their devotion through worship, but their conscience pricks them. And they recall that there's an offense that exists between them and their brother that causes a rift or broken fellowship. And Jesus uses the word brother here, but it really could be any relation. He's giving us this instruction to leave the context of the worship service, be reconciled, and then return with a clear conscience. So think about this application here briefly. Again, it involves and it assumes a relationship that used to exist that has gone sour. It's grown cold because of bitterness or hostility. There is a former context of affection that is now gone, whether it be relatives or siblings or parents or friends or other Christian believers. Whatever the specific relationship, this context assumes a relationship that was once close and is now not. Do you have one of those? Jesus says that we need to be aware of it And also, you notice what he says, that the person's conscience is pricked and the memory is not of a wrong perpetrated against you, but a wrong which someone else thinks you have perpetrated against them. There's a difference, right? We are good at seeing other people's offenses, and not so good at being mindful of our own sins. And what comes to mind in Jesus' example is that somebody else has an issue with me and I need to be reconciled to that person. Not a half-hearted passivity that sits back and says, well, if they have a problem, they should just come to me. No. If someone has an issue and it is unresolved, Jesus says, it is your responsibility to resolve it, even if you didn't start it, even if you didn't stir it, even if it's been sitting cold for decades. Jesus says, go. Because a half-hearted Christian devotion isn't worth anything. Go and be reconciled and then come back. There's a special application of that as you think about the Lord's Supper. As the plates pass you by, you think to yourself... Am I unreconciled with someone and I need to be reconciled with them? Can I take the sign of Jesus' reconciling grace and refuse reconciliation to someone else? That's what Jesus is saying. The second illustration in verse 25 and 26 You'll see it there. Come to terms quickly, verse 25, with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Two men on their way to court to settle a dispute. Imagine they're arguing the whole way. Jesus' word to them is to settle the matter now before you make it to court and therefore put it in the judge's hands and render you a penalty that is worse than the humility that you need to settle an account with someone you're hostile with. This context is different from the first example in that this example assumes no former relationship of love whatsoever, but only hostility. This person is an adversary. You have no former love for them whatsoever, but only hostility. And Jesus says you need to be reconciled to them as well. So the point is, is that Jesus is using these two pictures as examples. They're not laws. They're not legal advice they are illustrations about how important it is to pursue reconciliation and have right relationships with other people. The first picture in verses 23 and 24 emphasizes the necessity of reconciliation. And then later on we see the example about the urgency of reconciliation. And the point is this, that we must deal with anger and animosity that exists between us and other people. And when is the right time to do that? Now. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he is revealing the true understanding of the law of God. So, dear friend, how does this fall on your ear today? Are you an angry person? Maybe you wouldn't necessarily describe yourself that way, but does anger reside in your heart? Are there roots of bitterness and resentment that have driven so deep that you've given up confronting them? They're just part of your life. It can be so exhausting that we do give up because we know that we cannot set ourselves free from our anger. And most of the time people just say, that's just who I am. And to you, Jesus says, my grace can change who you are. And the law then drives us to our only hope, which is Christ himself. We come to Christ acknowledging that the law that we have broken in our anger, in our murder, in our unforgiveness, the law that we have broken is the law that Jesus has kept. Jesus was never out of step with the Father's law. He lived a life of perfect obedience, one that we are required to live but fail to live And when Jesus died, he took the pains and penalty of our law breaking upon himself. And when he rose again, he left our sins behind him, buried in the tomb, forgiven forever. And now he reigns upon heaven's throne and calls all people in all places to lay their trust on him. And it's this same Jesus that now speaks to us here in Matthew chapter 5. The Jesus that has lived and died and risen is the Jesus who calls you now to lay down your anger, to repent. He calls us here specifically in this text, but also in the gospel, to acknowledge our sin, to turn from it in repentance, and to lay hold of the promises of the gospel, which are a promise not just to forgive your sin, but to transform your life. People of God, this is the word of the king. Let us hear and obey. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that by your word you speak to us and that through your Holy Spirit you'd rest upon our hearts, our minds. I pray now, Lord, for each and every single one of us that we would not only hear the word but obey it. So now, Lord, we give ourselves to you entrusting our very lives to you and asking that you would transform us by your grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.